0: Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, cancer isn't just one disease, it's more than 100 diseases. And more than 200,000 Canadians will be diagnosed with cancer this year, in spite of the fact that four in 10 cancers are actually preventable. Understanding risk factors and making appropriate lifestyle changes is key. Now, a study conducted by Calgary researchers found that the top five preventable risk factors for cancer are smoking cigarettes, physical inactivity, excess weight, low fruit consumption, and sun exposure. And the most preventable cancer was cervical cancer, thanks largely to the HPV vaccine. Well, this week we welcome Dr. Sevtab Savash from the Division of Biomedical Sciences and the Faculty of Medicine at Memorial University for an important discussion on cancer rates in Newfoundland and the Public Interest Group on Cancer Research. Now, this is a province-wide partnership between researchers, health professionals, and members of the public focused on the needs and priorities of cancer patients and their families. We're then gonna be joined by Janine Taylor Cutting. She's a counseling therapist, patient advocate, and a cancer survivor. She'll share her personal experience as a stage three cancer survivor, from diagnosis through treatment to post-discharge from the cancer care system. We'll learn that patients and their families are faced with sometimes overwhelming challenges and ongoing difficulties. We'll learn what her firsthand experience has taught her about the needs and priorities of cancer patients here in our province. With our province having the highest rates of cancer in Canada, this is an important show to share even if it's a difficult subject. Let's check in with Dr. Savash and learn more. Hi, Dr. Savash. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. How is everything? It's good to see you. It's nice to see you in this setting instead of at the university where we work together. Why don't you tell everybody that's listening about what your role is at the university and what you research?
1: Okay. So I am currently a professor of uh, genetics and Oncology and Biomedical Sciences, I'm also cross-appointed to the discipline of oncology. My research is fully focused on the survival outcomes of cancer patients. So um, my overall aim is to, you know, improve their condition and wellness. And we do, you know, a variety of different research. As well as other activities like public engagement, advocacy, etc., to um, help do this and bring some sort of relief and hope and you know wellness to our cancer patients and families, starting in Newfoundland and Labrador.
0: Well, that's right, and I mean you know so there is a need here in the province for this. Like, what is the cancer rate in Newfoundland and Labrador compared to the rest of Canada?
1: Unfortunately, amongst all Canadian provinces, Newfoundland and Labrador has the highest cancer risk. So that means that just By being here, your risk of cancer or getting cancer increases. Uh, It's very interesting. It's worrisome. There is almost a gradient from west side of Canada towards East um, Canada. So other Atlantic Canadian provinces or Maritimes as well. For example, they also have higher risk, but ours is the highest. So every year, approximately uh, 3,800 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are diagnosed with cancer and almost uh, 1,800 of them die because of cancer. So these are significant uh, impacts you know, what these communities.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I and mean, I think about this like, you know, our health status, we have the highest rates of diabetes and obesity and heart disease and everything else. Does this sort of go hand in hand of why we have higher rates of cancer?
1: Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to answer this question, but maybe they have some common um, causes, mm. right? For example, when we think about why cancer risk increases, we think about risk factors, uh, social determinants of health and access to healthcare. For risk factors for cancer, for example, there are a number of well-known ones, for example, age. And we know that in Newfoundland and Labrador, we are an aging population. So as we age, our chances of accumulating this cellular genetic um, abnormalities increases. And this is one of the, you know, the reason for uh, developing tumors. So aging population, you know, the demographics um, is important, and of course, certain lifestyle factors it may be different from one person to other. For example, for lung cancer, right? We have, I think, in Finland and Labrador as well as Quebec, has a high, relatively higher rate of smoking in the country. So, that maybe that somehow uh, you know shows itself as a slight elevated risk for lung cancer in these provinces, um, or life you know, life factors. For example, obesity you mentioned is somehow related to other cancers. For example, sometime, uh, I think it's linked to colorectal cancer as well as I um, think breast cancer. Yeah. So yeah, there may be some, you know, common risk factors, but we should also talk about the social determinants of health, right? I mean, it's related to income, education services available, opportunities available to individuals. And in Newfoundland and Labrador, we have a huge, a relatively huge rural, population as well, their economic opportunities, etc. are so limited when compared to urban areas. So that that can show itself as um, a factor in, uh, you know, why uh, certain cancers are detected higher here. And it can also affect the survival um, chances of cancer patients as well.
0: Yes, that's right. I mean, I know the Health Accord NL has come out recently saying that's one of the big things. And uh, Sister Elizabeth uh, had been talking about that as well. So, yeah. So we're talking specifically about colorectal and stomach cancer. We have high rates of this as well, don't we, compared to the rest of Canada? Why Why do you think that we have these rates are so high, and our mortality rate is also the highest? Is it not? Yeah.
1: Right. So the. Overall, I think the risk of developing cancer as well as the, the risk of dying from cancer is highest in the Finland and Labrador compared to other provinces. This doesn't include the territories, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mortality can be high because the uh, um, incidence is high. In other words, there are more people being diagnosed with disease and that can translate into, you know, more people being die because of cancer. But we should also consider, as I said, like the aging population. When we talk about survival, we also think about, you know, um, disease characteristics. really important in cancer. How extensive is the disease? At the Time of diagnosis we call this as you know um, cancer stages early stages where the tumor is small you know it can be cured by if it's a solid tumor like colorectal cancer uh, it can be cured by surgery it can be removed from the body but as it's remain in the body you know the tumor grows the spread of the parts of the, this is when it becomes a little bit more challenging to manage clinically and survival rates really decreases dramatically mm. so this excessive Healthcare, I, I, and socio, you know, socioeconomic determinants of health. We really need to think about this, and you know, the demographic of population, like aging population. We have to think about all of this, and colorectal cancer. Not sure about stomach, but colorectal cancer is really risk is really modified by lifestyle factors, you know, constipation, the the foods they eat, and you know how much fiber we had in our a diet and so on again it's you know it's kind of related to socioeconomic uh, determinants of right. health i'm thinking all of this may be a contributing factor but yeah. uh, you know hopefully we will you know continue to talk about this disease because there yeah. are also ways that it can influence our risk of getting cancer and i think your listeners could would like to know this as well so
0: yeah well that's right i mean you just said age location, diet, because access to food is tough. And think about the Northern communities, even harder. I was up in Nain recently this year. and It's so much harder up in places like that as well. And so, yes, uh, you know, those are a lot of risk factors we have. Tell us about your public interest group on cancer Ah. research and what the motivation was behind that project. It's Mm. amazing. Yeah.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to talk about this group. So this was a dream came true really because I've been thinking about it for some time. Uh, it's basically, it's a public researcher partnership. We are collaborating. We are partners. Currently, we have three researchers. This includes myself, Dr. Hale Chakari and Dr. Cindy Witten. And they are both at Man, Uh, and Cindy is actually at Eastern Health as well. So it's really good, you know, kind of collaboration with in Man Eastern Health, but we also, in addition to three of us, we have twelve cancer patients or family members from Newfoundland and Labrador. I think that is uh, that is really a great group. So, what was our motivation in creating this group? We wanted to, you know, m- know more about patient and family perspectives. We mm-hmm. want to, to partner with them so that from the beginning on, we can work together in identifying research questions. Like what, what is their needs and priorities? We can't really know mm-hmm. unless we are in their shoes, right? So we want to get, you know, so we, we formed this partnership exactly for this purpose. Can we talk together? Can we work together? Can we identify needs, priorities, interests uh, of cancer-affected individuals in the province? And then can we co-design research studies and public engagement activities? So this is exactly what we have done. Uh, and we are increasingly in advocacy, but I think in terms of research, like we, uh, we formed, uh, we developed a research project together. It's under review uh, right now. Hopefully it will be funded. And it's not something that we thought that would be population need, but they do need it. Based on our conversation, it becomes so apparent. And um the other one is a public engagement idea. And I'm very excited to say that now it's funded as well. We are going to organize a free virtual public conference on cancer, with the target audience being the public members to talk about patient perspectives, further perspectives, screening and um how to, you know, have to uh manage cancer better and what are the support and other clinical services available to cancer patients and families in the Finland and Labrador. So I'm really looking forward mm-hmm. to that. And the idea has been developed, uh, in a, the, you know, together with our public members in the group, and they are actively, you know, working together to do this. So it's, it's really very successful, very enthusiastic, uh, very efficient group.
0: That was Dr. Sevtap Savash from the Division of Biomedical Sciences and the Faculty of Medicine at Memorial University. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Sevtap Savash of the Division of Biomedical Sciences and the Faculty of Medicine at Memorial University. She's sharing important information on cancer rates in Newfoundland and Labrador and the Public Interest Group on Cancer Research. Let's get back to the interview. What are some of the things that you have learned or your group has learned from the consultation with the patients themselves and their families?
1: Okay, we we I learned a lot. As a matter of fact, like I have a meeting with them in forty minutes now, and I can't wait because every time we meet with them, they are so generous to sharing their thoughts, and they are, you know, they are amazing people. So we learned last year, for example, in twenty twenty one, we learned that there were three three main areas that cancer patients and families uh, wanted us to do better. So for example, they had concerns about accessibility, right? So we know that uh, cancer care is mostly centralized. Most of the, you know, services like um, radiation, I think, uh, most of the chemotherapy and some of the surgeries particularly are done here. So that means our patients need to uh, travel from other parts of the province to here. Mm-hmm. So that was like, it's, a, it's an accessibility issue because it's crazy, you know, time-wise and also out-of-pocket expenses. It's a financial. And on the other hand, someone is saying, just like myself, I mean, I can just, you know, take a cap, go to Health Sciences Center. So Mm -hmm. I understand that this is uh, nothing related to our cancer care program, but we just need to hear about, you know, our um, patients' perspective. So they wanted, you know, equal access to services across the province. And I hear them. We hear them. I think we all empathize with them. And second thing that they had a lot of information is, for example, what is my disease about? Like, what stage is it? What treatment? I think at one point they are given this information, but it can be so overwhelming. Mm. You know, so they they needed better resources for information. And also, like, what is a credible information, for example, if somebody has any questions about their uh, insurance or other benefits or their future prognosis, so... You know, the, the, the time with their physician probably on oncologist probably is limited. So they have a lot of questions about their own disease, their future treatment, you know, other, um, other options for themselves and family members. So where do they go? Mm-hmm. Luckily, you know, luckily there is a really great dedicated provincial cancer care program in this province. So they have a number of different programs. But the issue we detected was that many of our patients and families were not aware of them. Mm. well <laughs> right. so there is this great dedicated team of individuals who are aiming to you know support cancer patients and families for example through uh, oncology social work through a nurse navigator program but not everyone was aware of them so we saw so, you know how can we put this you know make this connection better because the services here professionals are so dedicated Yes. So and our patients and families. So that was that is really something that we really would like to work on. Yeah. And the third one was that uh, our patients and families wanted to be empowered. Yes. Right. It looks yeah. like. It looks like you know they wanted to know more, you know, resources, information, including their own information, but also they wanted other people to understand them better, like their changes. So cancer may or may not change you or your physical abilities. For example, at the workplace, some people may uh, treat like nothing has changed, but maybe something's have changed, or other people may treat you like everything changed about you, make an assumption. So they wanted to be understood better. Yeah and empower so these are the three key things that we learned from our conversation last year
0: that's interesting so i guess through all this you've you've been looking in a different place because you're a researcher so you would typically be looking at lab now you've reached out to the public and you've consulted with people that your research will benefit directly
1: yeah
0: what what have you learned like what's what's the most important research that you think is we need to pursue uh going forward in the scientific world
1: So I can answer that in two different ways. The first one is really like a general idea. We really need to include patients and families in our research Mm. from the beginning on. As I said, like the information is of of our patients. This is not what we thought was the most important barrier here, but it turned out to be so. And it's very extensive. So we really need to address that. But we couldn't know that before without involving uh, the perspectives and experiences of our cancer patients, our family members. So so this is very important. Involve um, patients from beginning on. Mm-hmm. And we do, and they are acting as patient partners in our research um, proposals now. And hopefully, you know, and with the public engagement uh, project I mentioned, like the public conference on cancer, we work together. And, and this is designed um, fully based on their needs and uh, suggestions, because, I mean, for me, maybe this virtual meeting is really uh, easy, but is it really accessible, like, we really need to think about this, and we do do get the tips from our public members like this. So, in any way, in any health-related research, public engagement, I think it's really important to include the representative of the public and the patients. But for us, the immediate research is this is the project that we, I said, that we designed together with our group, our patient and family members, and based on their needs, information needs. Again, as I said, they need it for at different times of their cancer trajectory, from diagnosis to survivorship. They, there is a need for a lot of uh, different information. Maybe Mm. at the beginning it's about disease, but after a while it's about uh, treatment options. And then maybe after that about recovery or the long term. So, yeah, as I said, like the first main idea is that, you know, we have to include the public patients, families, whoever we are really trying to help through our research and other scholar activities, we really need to include them because what we think is important for them is probably not the one that, they think is important. So it's really important to have their recommendations, opinions, and so on. The other thing I can say is that, like for for us, for example, our discussions um, created, like there are three different key points, right? The accessibility of, you know, equity and accessibility of healthcare, of cancer care, and then information needs and how do we meet them. And then, you know, patient empowerment. So for us, for example, the one that we are uh, right about pursuing uh, right now is information We designed the study together. Uh, it's under review, hopefully if it's funded and when it's funded, we really would like to do that, like get a more uh, detailed knowledge about how the the patient and family needs and also have the opinion and perspective of the healthcare providers yeah. because they are also a part of it and then how can we really make it better by having you know advisor committees to send that how can we really uh, is it you know providing more booklets is there is it more you know patient education materials whatever that is so this is a this is the one that we really would like to work on right now
0: that's exciting. Well, it sounds like you're lucky to have them, and they're lucky to have you. You know, before we clue up here, and it is exciting to hear about the changes that you're doing, and you guys are trying to work together on. Any any last advice you'd like to leave our listeners with?
1: Right, maybe not an advice, but um, maybe this is what I can say. Like a lot of. A lot of time we are really scared of cancer, right? And I understand why. I'm, I'm, I'm a resident of this province as well. And, you, you know, you may want to know that 45% of the Canadians will be diagnosed with cancer. This is a very common disease. If you are not diagnosed with it, your loved ones can be diagnosed with it. So it does affect all of us. I know we are scared of it. I know we don't want it. But you know what? There has been tremendous uh, progress in treatment, diagnosis, screening, and so on. So you can actually um, prevent the measures as well, like quitting smoking, having a healthier lifestyle if possible. You know, you have have the power to actually modify some of this uh, or influence your risk of, uh, getting cancer, and if you're interested, then please talk to your physicians, your doctors, you know, uh, about things that you can do, and take advantage of early uh, diagnosis. So sometimes, whatever you do, you still get diagnosed with cancer, like inherited cases, right? Sometimes it's your genetics, but still, it doesn't it doesn't have to be a death sentence. Uh, early detection is really is really important. It really saves lives. So, as I said, when it's in the beginning. When, it's, when the tumor is small, it's really curable. So please, please think about this. Uh, try to influence your own, you know, risk. Reduce it. Hopefully, talk to your, you know, um, physician, um, physicians, and um, take advantage of the services available to you.
0: That's great. There
1: is hope. There is hope.
0: That's great. And it's it's so nice to hear from you. It's so nice to hear about the amazing things you're doing and the new forms of collaboration that you're bringing into your research. So thank you so much for taking the time to joining us today.
1: Thank you, Mike. This is amazing. Thank you very much.
0: That was doctor Sev Savash. When we come back, we'll talk with Janine Taylor-Cutting, counseling therapist, patient advocate, and cancer survivor. She'll share her personal experience as a stage three cancer survivor. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We're here with Janine Taylor-Cutting, a counseling therapist, patient advocate, and cancer survivor. She's sharing her personal experience as a stage 3 cancer survivor. Let's hear her story. Hi, Janine. Welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Dr. Wall. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: It's it's so nice to have you here. It's nice to hear from somebody who's got lived experience because that's the one that we can all relate to. Can you tell the folks listening a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with being an advocate for patients with cancer?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, I was diagnosed at age 42 with uh, colorectal cancer, stage three. Um, I was, uh, my husband and I had three kids, busy school counselor Very healthy and active, so it wasn't expected at all. The only thing that I can say about that experience was that it was life changing. Within a day, my whole life changed. So I started on a year, I guess, about a year of treatments. I had radiation, surgery, chemotherapy. And during that year, I just really felt compelled to share my story. So I started a blog. Uh, it was called A Year of Weather because in my uh, <laughs> my innocence at the time, I thought that it would all be over in a year. But anyway, <laughs> uh, A Year of Weather, I guess it was popular locally. A lot of people here shared it. I live in Grand Falls, Windsor, so I had a really uh, supportive community around me. So through that blog, I was able to start advocating a little bit around different issues that were related to cancer treatment and the cancer experience. Um, So I wrote about um, listening empathically to people who are going through difficult experiences like cancer treatment. And I wrote about the importance of hormone therapy for women who have ovarian failure for for cancer treatment and screening and all of those various things. Um, I wrote about mental health as well and how cancer treatments affect it. So through that blog, um, I feel like uh, that was kind of where I started this journey to get to where I am today, working with SevTap on the public interest uh, group. So anyway, after that, in my private practice as a counselling therapist, I started focusing on medical trauma. And uh, another community member who was going through his own cancer experience reached out and, and said, maybe we should start a support group. So we did that. Yeah, and we went, we ran that through the pandemic virtually, so that was a great experience. Mm-hmm. So that, in a nutshell, is how I spent the last three years, I guess. Wow. <laughs> it's been a pretty crazy three years.
0: That's right. You've done a lot, and that's a perfect example of life gives you lemons, you make orange juice and make them wonder how you did it. Like You've turned a very negative situation to something that's helped a tremendous amount of people. And, you know, uh, we're going to pick your brain on some of these things today that you think are some of the key, key things that people should listen to if they're listening to this and, they're, and there's, change, uh, you know, struggling with an early diagnosis of cancer. So one of the things that you say is that early diagnosis uh, for cancer gives you the highest rate of success for treatment and survival. So what are some reasons why people delay a cancer diagnosis?
2: Well, uh, there's a lot of reasons, I think one new one that we have right now is lack of access to to regular screening and everything because of the COVID shutdowns. So that's a whole other conversation, I guess. Uh, In my experience, what delayed my um, diagnosis was a lack of knowledge. Mm. So I was, as a 42-year-old, the whole idea of colorectal cancer was not even in my realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. I started feeling sick and I was um, fatigued and I had pelvic pain and pressure. I was treating myself for hemorrhoids. (laughs) Sorry, it was TMI, but uh, I just thought, you know, that's what that is at my age. I was aware of colon cancer screening because my parents were Uh, you know, they were involved in getting their regular colonoscopies, but it didn't occur to me that it could happen to somebody my age. So, um, of course, that delayed me seeking help and talking to my doctor about my symptoms. I had been, had a number of workups in other ways because I was feeling rotten. I had, you know, a referral to see a gynecologist and a full workup there. And I had, uh, uh, you know, I had found a lump in my breast and I had an ultrasound and But really, I was sick with uh, a tumor in my rectum. And I really had no information available to me to think that that could even be a possibility. So Mm -hmm. I think information is is the most important thing and, and for people to understand what the symptoms and signs can be of various illnesses and cancers. And so since then, like on my Facebook, and in my blog, I often talk about the symptoms and I tell people like check your poo and go and get your colonoscopy and lots of times people will reach out and tell me when they've had their colonoscopy or when they've had polyps removed and that makes me really happy because I, I feel like if I had had some of that information things might have been a bit different for me I might have been uh, at you know stage one or two rather than mm-hmm. stage three when I was diagnosed.
0: Yes, of course. And that's right. And, and, you know, uh, health literacy is the reason we do the show so that somebody listening, tuning in, just going for a drive can hear something that could potentially shift their entire focus for their health going forward. So, you know, you've talked a little bit about the mental health side of things, but other than dealing with emotional strain of a cancer diagnosis, you know, what are some of the key challenges that people face when they have cancer here in this province?
2: Well, there's a number of challenges, I think, that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians face. Um, right now, currently, there's uh, a lack of access to certain resources and family doctors and different things. Also, our geographic uh, challenges can be quite huge. I was living in Grand Falls, Windsor, like I said, and I had to travel to St. John's for my radiation and my surgery. Mm-hmm. And um, that was kind of tough for me at the time. I called Daffodil House, and there was nothing available because my treatments happened fairly quickly after my diagnosis, and I think they were booked up for six or eight weeks out at that point. Mm-hmm. Now I was lucky because I had a brother in town. I probably would have ended up staying with him anyway because he would have yeah. been like, what? <laughs> "You have to stay mm-hmm. with me." But um, you know, just the the back and forth, the exhaustion of the travel. Um, I remember finishing my last radiation treatment, and that was on a Friday, and um, driving home to spend the weekend with my kids, and I was going back on Sunday to do my prep for my surgery, which was the next day, and um, I spent, you know, weeks just going back and forth to St. John's, which um on top of them I guess the mental toll of everything was tough mm-hmm. and then you know when you think about people who maybe are in Labrador or in even more rural areas than what I was that can get pretty tough yeah um, and you know we have centers all around the province like we have a, a cancer care center in Grand Falls, Windsor so I did six months of chemo and I was able to access it in my community which I was really grateful for if I had to run to emerge because I spiked a fever, which happened a lot, it wasn't so bad. But for people who are on the South Coast, it's a different story. So I think um, telehealth can help with some some of that. But sometimes we need physical care though. So that can be difficult.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, that is one of the things. We've got a lot of challenges here geographically. That comes up constantly. We talk about uh, our medical services here. It's one of the values of living in Newfoundland is we can live remotely, but it also makes it hard to get medical care sometimes. Now, once a diagnosis is made, what resources did you avail of or that people can avail of in the public?
2: There's a lot of resources. The first and most important one and if there's any doctors listening, give this to your patients when you diagnose them because a friend of mine called me about, I don't know, a couple of days into this experience and said, here's a, a thing called a, a cancer patient navigator. It's a, a person you can call and they're a nurse and they will help you. Um, so that's a huge resource that I took advantage of. And I my cancer patient navigator, helped me figure out what was going on because I had no idea what a tumor board was or uh, you know, how this plan was gonna be hatched and what, what I needed to do first. So I was just sent home, I was diagnosed, okay, you have a tumor in your rectum, you're gonna have to have treatments, you're gonna have to have a permanent colostomy, now go home. And I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I don't really know what's gonna happen. So the Cancer Patient Navigator led me through everything. She had access to my records and she could check like my appointments and call doctors. So that's an amazing resource. Yeah. Um, and I noticed the other day that on the cancer care page now for mm-hmm. Eastern health that website, which is a good resource in and of itself. Um, they have the cancer patient navigator information right on the front page now. Yes. So that's, that's really great. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, those types of tools are really important for people. Now, the other thing that's really important is you said you improved your health literacy as you went along. How important is self-advocating for your own health when it comes to dealing with physicians and the medical system?
2: I think it's really important for everybody, not just people with cancer. We all Mm -hmm. need to be able to go to the doctor and say... Here's what my, you know, here's what my needs are. Here are my concerns. Here are some questions that I have. And I think we get confused sometimes. And we think that if we're advocating, we're being demanding. Mm -hmm. But I just try to think about it as communication, right? You're a member of this team. Your healthcare team is inclusive of yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, you have to go in and communicate with them. And that'll help them make the best decisions for your care. And it'll keep you, I guess, feeling more in control and, and less stressed because you're able to walk out with your questions answered. Mm-hmm. So this really important. And if, you know, and it's really important too that you bring somebody with you. You can have a family member or a friend with you most of the time anyway, to ask those questions if you're not feeling up to it yourself.
0: That's Janine Taylor-Cutting, counseling therapist and patient advocate and cancer survivor. She's sharing her personal experience as a stage three cancer survivor. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back, we're here with Janine Taylor Cutting, counseling therapist, patient advocate, and cancer survivor. She's sharing her personal experience as a stage three cancer survivor. Let's get back to the interview. So somebody like yourself, they go in to see a physician, they get given this crazy news that things are going to change in their life. It's just got to be overwhelming at that point. You know, what advice would you give people when it comes to asking the questions, but also having support people that can help you navigate that when you might not be yourself, right?
2: Yeah, that's... uh... A really good question, and I think I have a really concrete answer. This is what really worked for me really well, was get a binder. Yeah. <laughs> Every time you have a test, a scan, a scope, blood work, ask your doctor for a printout, put it in your binder. In between your appointments, and this could be you or it could be a caregiver or a loved one, uh, write down concerns, symptoms, weird things that are happening. Mm-hmm. And as you're preparing to go to your next appointment, on a sheet of paper, write down your questions and any information you want to pass on to your doctor. Mm -hmm. And then when you go in and you put your binder down and you whip out your paper, well, then you're in charge. And the thing is, is that I haven't met a doctor yet that won't sit patiently while you ask those questions that you have and make your notes Mm -hmm. in the meeting. And I think like going in that way really prepares you to get the information that you need.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things doctors do is take a history and sometimes keeping it, having a patient that's informed on themselves, give them the vital information is going to be really important for them too. Um, you know, when you're going through those situations, there's got to be physical and emotional stress. It's got to be compounded when you're going through treatments that are extremely hard in your body. And then given the pandemic on top of it, like there's a lot going on. Uh, did you find the pandemic? really impacted things or the resources that were available specific to the pandemic that kind of made it a little bit better?
2: I think there's one word that sums up the torture that being a cancer patient is at times and it's waiting and Mm -hmm. the pandemic intensified that for so many people, Mm -hmm. right? whether you're waiting for an MRI or CT or your next appointment, um, when you're sitting there thinking that you may be having a recurrence or that your cancer, if you're still an active, you know, an active cancer patient that your, your cancer may be growing. That is a mental load that I cannot even begin to describe. So yes, the, the COVID, the COVID impacts were, incredibly tough for people because, um, I'm just thinking of people, you know, who need an urgent MRI a couple of years ago, that might've happened within a week mm-hmm. and now it might be four or five or six weeks. Yeah. So, and that might be improving and it, it probably is right. Um, but that's the biggest impact that I can see is just that wait time. So when you're in a process of trying to, um, heal, mm and then you have this like stress of waiting it's really hard because you're hypervigilant you're amped up and it's hard for your body to heal when you're feeling that way
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and you found positive outlets becoming an advocate writing a blog sharing you know mm-hmm. your your history and i think that's such a great way to try and ease some of that stress by knowing you're making a difference now you said yourself that you 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 wrote a blog it was going to be for a year and then eventually maybe within a year you were discharged from the cancer care program but that that really isn't all it wrote right so what does that mean going forward for you now that you've been cleared and you're in remission
2: i just have to address like that period of time after cancer treatment after active treatment because we don't really talk about it very much Mm um and i've Thought for a long time, what would I call that period of time? I don't know. I I don't have a good name yet. For a while, I was calling it in the muck. (laughs) I don't know. But when you're going through active treatment, you're in survival mode and you have your milestones usually, if you're fortunate, right? You're like, okay, I know I have to do these treatments. I have to do this surgery. Then I have this treatment. And every day you're looking forward to the next thing you have to do. You may feel miserable, but you know what you have to do. Mm -hmm and um then you know and again this is if you're fortunate enough to kind of reach the end of your treatment and they're saying well you're cancer free or there's no evidence of disease or you're in remission um it's like you're at this pinnacle Mm -hmm. the top of the mountain but you have to get down the other side and you never really thought about that part you're just there um and and of course everybody's really happy because this is where you want to be and you feel like you should be lucky but there's a lot of dissonance around it, because everything that you powered through for the past number of months, I guess it just kind of catches up. Yeah. And for me, it was like I just shut down for a while and Mm -hmm. I stopped. I couldn't write my blog and I kind of lost my voice for that. And I got really anxious and I developed a lot of panic and I wanted to. Now that I've kind of come through all that, I think it's important to talk about it because it's a period of time when people need support Mm -hmm. and there is a program that um, the cancer care center has called, I think it's called Lost in transition. Okay. And it's there for, it is there for people, I think Mm -hmm. to make that transition. I wasn't aware of it at the time, maybe because I was outside of the Avalon. Uh, But I think when you're coming off of that active treatment, reaching out for help, whether it's through a program like that, or, uh, you know, you can uh, connect with an oncology social worker through Eastern Health or any other, I guess, mental health care professional. It gives you a place to process what you just went through, reframe it, um, you know, figure out where to go from here. For me, it was a, I had to get in touch with my body and just learn how to live in my body and feel the feelings that, that I needed to feel, mm-hmm. I, you know, physically, everything was different. So you're coming out of treatment and you might have four or five or six different things that you didn't expect to have. Right. Yeah. And yeah. So um, for me, it was a period of time. It was a very important period of time. Yeah. And I woke up one day, um, not that long ago. And I thought, Oh, I feel this like passive non-resistance in me now Mm. where it's like, if I get, I could get sick again. The possibility is there, but I'm going to live as if I'm not. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel like that for a very long time. So when you're just coming out of treatment and you're thinking recurrence is a possibility, you don't want to burden your loved ones with that. So it's important to find somebody to talk to if you can and get support. It's a hard time.
0: It is, (laughs) it is. Mm -hmm. So you can share a few things you learned through your own cancer experience and as a member of this public interest group in cancer research.
2: So I learned um, about the immense capacity that we have to heal through my own experience. I learned about recognizing that your body and your mind and your spirit, it's all one thing, right? Mm -hmm. We're we tend to be up in our heads all the time, but it wasn't until I got really back into my body and learned how to feel everything through my body again, that I could, that I could see that I was healing and feeling better and healing from the inside out. So I guess just a sense of being a whole person Mm -hmm. is what I learned, Mm -hmm. you know, coming out of this, like we can be wounded, we can have scars and all kinds of things, but we can still be a whole person and we have all kinds of, power mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. things and we have power to do things that might be small but they're big mm-hmm. and i feel that when i'm in the meetings with sev tap and all the other members of the public interest group because we all bring different cancer experiences to the table mm-hmm. but everyone in that room patients caregivers you know researchers people who who work with cancer patients we've all been touched by it mm-hmm. And so we all have different perspectives. And when we come together, the conversations are just so great. And we always come up with new things that we can do to make things better for the next people. Yes. And that's what it's all about, right? We're always learning from what we went through and trying to make it better for the next group.
0: (laughs) That's right. Well, that's a good use of what your horrible experience was able to help other people. And that's just a beautiful way to, to make something good out of something that's really unfortunate. Now, Anybody listening might have been really intrigued by your story. It was really nice of you to share it all, but do you have any last words that you want to share with our listeners before we close off?
2: Yes, I do. If you are 50 or older, you can register for the colon cancer screening program through Eastern Health right on the webpage, or you, you can call them, email them. That just involves fit tests that you can do at home and then access to colonoscopies if you need them. If you're under 50, remember that the signs and symptoms of colorectal cancer are abdominal pain, cramping, bloating, pelvic pain, tenderness, fatigue changes in bowel habits, narrow stool, and blood in your stool, mm-hmm. even if it's bright red, contrary to popular opinion. So check the poo, everybody. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's wild, but uh, you know that's that's the key to a lot of parts of our body. I recently did a microbiome <laughs> test where they had to you know sample that way too. So listen, it does tell us a lot what's going on inside of our body. Um, thank you so much for taking the time today, Janine. I really appreciate you coming by and sharing your story with us.
2: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you to our guests for joining me today. A resounding message comes through whenever we talk about cancer risk here in our province. Early detection and screening are critical for catching it early and improving outcomes. Patient advocacy and playing an active role in your treatment as well as reducing risk factors related to lifestyle are also themes which always emerge. These are things that we can do to improve our chances. With almost one in two Canadians developing cancer in our lifetime, it's something we should all keep in mind, and adopting a mindset around health will offer protection from many of the other health challenges we face in our life as well. Well, thanks for joining me today. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your VOCM.